So last week, we had an exciting speaker, Jed Haas, a good friend of mine, and he got to share some of his life story and the difficulty he had been in and um, the near-death experience that he had and God's faithfulness and God, how God answered prayer. And this, this week, you have me, and I'm talking about hypocrites. <laughs> but if we are committed to the whole counsel of God, we are going to come across passages about hypocrites, and today we do. In June of 2013, the world's eight most powerful leaders met in Northern Ireland for the G8 summit. The eight leaders of the global world economies included U.S. President Barack Obama, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Northern Ireland made preparations for the arrival of these prestigious guests, and they invested uh, a significant amount of money. The government, local governments, invested money to spruce up uh, the location, and they, uh, they invested in improving over 100 local properties. But the area's economy had suffered greatly, and the stores were closed, and people were out of work in this small village where all of this entourage would pass through. Uh, the properties were spruced up primarily cosmetically only. Some storefronts were repainted, but Mostly in the windows of these stores that were closed were huge pictures. They were pictures of stores. Like a barbershop had the sign on the front, but in the window of the barbershop was a picture of a barbershop with people in it. And grocery stores had pictures in the windows of grocery story sto uh, stores and people shopping. It was designed to look like a thriving business area. Now, if you walk by on the street, this was quite obvious to you. The local people did not appreciate this. But if you were speeding past in a limousine, it had the look of a prosperous location. In fact, there are pictures of this uh, online. Um, Northern Ireland's economy looked good on the outside, but was desperate on the inside, and it was all about the appearance. But you know, the same, the same thing is true of people, isn't it? Sometimes we want to look good on the outside. We focus on the external things, and we don't really take care of things on the inside. Jesus encountered people like this in the first century, and we will encounter them today, and they were the Jewish religious leaders of his day. And we're going to begin this with a parable of light. It's a parable about spiritual insight in Luke chapter 11, and I want to read that for us, uh, this uh, first parable, Luke chapter 11, verse 33, and Jesus said, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on a stand 
so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your body is also full of light. But when they are bad, your body is also full of darkness. See to it, then, that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. So um, let me just set a little context here. In Luke 11 already, um, because it comes out of a bit of a negative context to set this up, uh, Jesus began in Luke chapter 11 teaching his disciples to pray. Remember, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And then, then he t- t- uh, taught them the, what we call the Lord's Prayer sometime or the disciples' prayer. And uh, Jesus then uh, set about to do ministry, proclaiming the good news as he did regularly. And he came across a man that was demonized, and um, he delivered that man. He, he gave freedom from that man from his captivity to uh, this demon. And Jesus was accused by the religious leaders of casting out demons in the power of Beelzebub, or in the power, another way of talking about Satan. That's what, that's, they knew that was the person of the devil. And then the religious leaders kind of, uh, not real serious, but asked Jesus for a sign because that's what Jewish people do. I mean, that's, what, that's a design in their system that uh, God does miracles and he authenticates the messenger and the message. And they understood that. And so they want Jesus to show them something, do something big, convince us. Now, Jesus isn't interested in hearts like this who aren't serious and sincere and want more. And Jesus said, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. And, you know, they all knew the story of Jonah, how Jonah had been in a great fish for three days, and then he got coughed up on the other side, and he lived. It was a miracle. It was a sign. And it got a whole lot of people's attention. And it was very instructive to Jonah, and we can learn from it too. But they would be given, the leaders would be given the sign of Jonah... As Jonah was in the fish three days, so the Son of Man will be in a grave for three days. Then there's going to be a great miracle because that's going to be the sign. And it will be the resurrection. And um, they're not going to get it. They don't believe it. It doesn't make sense. They don't understand it. For some of them, it's going to sink in. It's going to take some time. But there will be a resurrection. Things are going to change big time in Jerusalem and in the world because of this man, Jesus. So we come back to this uh, parable about spiritual insight. And uh, verse 33, no one lights a lamp. Now, Jesus talked about light on many occasions. So this is just one. He actually already did in Luke chapter 8. And we looked at that, and he had a slightly different focus. And for sure, he's saying here, the purpose of light is to enable people to see things accurately. Light is good. We're in a room like this, and for me, it's just a little bit dark. Um, Light helps us see things the way they really are. Um, It is not logical to hide a light, a lamp that's giving off light in a room, a dark room where you need to see, 
It's not logical to cover it or to hide it. Light is to be displayed. Now, especially in a home, it, they didn't have a lot of windows. Um, they were dark, and lights were very important for living inside a home. Light, by its nature, exposes darkness. Now, Jesus' audience gets this. It's just common sense. No big deal here. Good story, Jesus. He goes on, verse 34, and he talks about the purpose of the eye. Your eye is the lamp of your body. Now, this is not about science, because we don't have to argue about, is, is an eye a lamp? Does the eye give light? Well, Jesus is using a metaphor here, and he's saying the eye is the organ of perception, and we see the outside world through this eye. And the idea here is if this eye is healthy, when your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. Uh, when, our, when our eyes are healthy, we see the world the way it is. If, if something about our lens isn't distorted and we got the so-called 2020, or if we don't have cataracts, I know about that. When you, some of you, when you become an older person, you may have eye problems. Now, a year ago, I had a kind of a little more serious surgery on my right eye, and they removed a wrinkled, like a cellophane membrane over it, and th that helped a little bit. And then I got a cataract real fast on this eye, and all the whole time there was a cataract developing on this eye, and you've seen me struggle up here in the dark sometimes, especially when there's a big shadow over here. And so, on August 30th, got the, right eye, got the cataract taken out of the right eye. Last Thursday, on September 20th, got the cataract taken out of the left eye. The world is bright. Although not totally accurate, but pretty much accurate. Uh, when, they, when, when they are unhealthy, when your eyes are unhealthy... When there's, if there's disease, if there's something wrong, your body is also full of darkness. Your eyesight impacts your world. Clear vision enables you to see. When you, when you have to walk in a room and you pick something up off the carpet, it's your eyes that enable you. It, you, you, you get there. It's accurate. Um, it, your eyesight, your vision, clear vision helps you to walk along a path so that you don't stumble over a big chunk of concrete on the sidewalk. Um, but Jesus is going to switch the metaphor. He's going to switch this concept of light. He's been talking about actual eyesight. Now he's going to talk about spiritual eyesight. And, he, and verses 35 and 36, the need for spiritual light. Verse 35, see to it then that the light that is within you is not darkness. The light within you, the idea of... Uh, uh, what is it in you that makes choices and perceives about truth? What is it that in you is that responds to God and his word? The light within you. What is this spiritual receptor within you? Um, is it light from heaven? Do you, are you able to discern things because you have heavenly insight? 
because you have a spiritual connection with God or is your spiritual receptor just another human receptor? It's just people's best guess. It's really a guess without God. Jesus is talking about the need for spiritual light. He says in verse 36, Therefore, if your whole body is full of light, if you have real spiritual life, if you have um, revelation that comes from God and shines on you, and you see things accurately the way they really are in this world, what is evil, what is good, then... No part of it is dark, and it will be just as full of light as when the lamp shines it on you. So what Jesus is saying is, when Jesus, now he's just, remember, he's... Um, set free a man who was demonized. He's been out announcing the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. He is the king, and he is present. The kingdom of God is here now. As Jesus announces this, the goal is for people to get connected to that light and to receive that light and to be aligned with that light. The goal, then, is to reflect the light fully. That's what Jesus wanted his disciples to do, and he's talking to his disciples right here, as well as the whole audience. Because light is to, is to, to reflect the person of Jesus. The goal is to come out of the darkness spiritually. That's what he's been doing, announcing the kingdom of God. Okay, now we're going to make this switch. We've been talking about this parable of light, about spiritual insight, and we come to the hypocrites. And we focus on the practice of religious hypocrites in verses 37 through 44. What is a hypocrite? Well, a hypocrite is somebody who pretends or fakes to be something or to believe something that they don't actually possess. A hypocrite is a person whose private life does not back up their public life or their public statements. And uh, that is Jesus' concern of what the religious leaders of Israel have become in the first century. The setting is verse 37 and 38. Um, verse 37, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee, one of these religious leaders, this was a separatist group, they had a high view of Scripture, but they had added a whole lot of rules on top of Scripture, and their sort of their thinking was, their motive was, we'll create a hedge of protection around God's Word to really keep people safe. So if they follow our instructions, they're bound to follow the instructions that God has given us in his word. A Pharisee invited him, Jesus, to eat with him. So he went and reclined at the table. Remember, they would sort of lie on a couch and they would, their heads would be leaned in toward the table and that's where the food would be in the conversation. 
Now, it would be commendable if this Pharisee had invited Jesus because he was serious and he was thinking and he was curious and he really wanted to know what Jesus had to say. Most likely, he's looking to see what Jesus' weaker points would be to um, evaluate his teaching and to correct his teaching and to belittle his teaching. And one of the things you see in the New Testament, you find the religious leaders talking most about other people and not so much to them. So like they talk about Jesus when he's not there and kind of afraid to talk to him when he's present. And then they, they ask him a few questions. Um, it says in verse 38, but the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. This wasn't a matter of hygiene. It wasn't because Jesus' hands were dirty and everybody came to wash their dirty hands. This was a very important religious practice of the first century for pretty much all of the Jewish people, and it was instituted by the Pharisees and that religious crowd. And they had a ceremonial washing where they would pour water over their hands before they ate, and it was sort of like so everybody could see and make sure, oh yeah, he's in, he's in, he's in. Uh-oh, Jesus didn't do it, got him. And this wasn't something commanded in Scripture. This was one of those rules added to be like extra special because we don't want you to be defiled. And you may have gotten defiled by touching something accidentally, and so we'll do this just to make sure it's all good. And they, they focus on these practices, the things to do, and they're going to miss something really important on the inside. Um, the external focus of religious practices, verse 39 through 41, and Jesus is going to nail this. It comes right to the point. The Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Now, that's, he didn't mess around there. He uses a little metaphor here about the cup. You know, it's like, okay, you got a cup, and it's been used, and it's dirty. It's had food in it or something to drink, and other people have used it. Now we're going to wash it. Okay, let's just scrub it up. Say, oh, it looks good. Everything on the outside is just fine. And uh, his point is, this is how you are. The outside is good, but you've neglected what's on the inside. Um, Jesus is saying, you leaders, you're focused on looking, looking super spiritual to the people around you. But on the inside, there is greed. Um, it says, uh, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. On the outside, you're religious. You got the right clothes on. You've done the right steps today. People watch you. You've said the right words. But inside, you're full of greed. You want more and more of what you have enough already. And full of wickedness, just a general term. For, uh, you know, just for this self-centered uh, focus of wanting things um, that aren't necessarily pleasing to God. He's saying, you have not attended to your inner life. You're, you have not dealt with heart matters. You have not dealt with your own sin. In fact, you've covered it up. You look good, you look good on the outside, but you really stink on the inside. Verse 40, you foolish people. Again, Jesus, you know, he doesn't speak to many people this way. 
I've talked about it before, and you know in John chapter 1, Jesus was full of grace and truth, and he lived that out perfectly. He knew how to teach people, uh, deal with people graciously, and you know, he went to the woman at the well, the one who'd been married five times, and he just gently talks to her, and she's had some failure in her life, and he's not hitting her over the head with her failure. He's trying to introduce her uh, to this relationship with God through faith. And he's just sitting there having a conversation. Then there's that embarrassing moment in John chapter 8 when that w- a woman is caught in adultery by the religious leaders and they drag her out. And we don't know a lot, but apparently she would have just been naked before the whole crowd. And the, 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 the leaders want to embarrass Jesus. They're embarrassing the woman. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And he's just gentle with her. He's gracious. He doesn't, he doesn't pull up every verse in the Old Testament that, of the mistake she's made. But then he comes to the religious leaders, and he has a very high standard for them. And he just rebukes their socks off. He doesn't mess around. And he speaks words of judgment on them. And he's going to give them an opportunity to repent. They always have an opportunity to change. But he is going to make it clear for them because God has high expectations for his leaders. Um, You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? You know, let's go back to the cup. Who made the cup? Did the person who made the outside of the cup also make the inside of the cup? Yeah, that's no-brainer. What about the person who made you? The one who made your outside. Did he make your inside also? Yeah. The designer of the universe, when he created the human body, created the outside of the inside, it's really complicated. I don't know what's on the inside here. I don't know exactly where my mind is located, where my heart is located. I don't. It's complicated. Um. But God is the one who made the inside. But now, as for what is inside you, greed, wickedness. That's what he's just said is on the inside of that cup, what's on the inside of their lives. He said, as for what is inside you, not the cup, you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Jesus is showing them an action step for repentance. You need to take care of what's on the inside. You have some darkness, some greed, some evil that you haven't dealt with. You haven't been honest with it. You have sin issues, and you haven't brought them to God. You haven't sought forgiveness. And now you need to make some You need to do that, and you need to make some turns. You need to make a step here. And to deal with your greed, um, you need to be generous to the poor. God's heart is for generosity. God's heart is to help the poor. And Jesus says, if you make these steps, you're going to be okay in here. But Jesus continues in verse 42, the misunderstanding of generosity toward God. And he goes, verse 42, woe to you, Pharisees. He's right back at it. Uh, He's not saying you're going to go to hell. He's, He's saying, oh, how sad it is for you. 
This is your condition. If you don't change, you're going to stay like this and be in darkness eternally. How sad this is, you Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, your rule, and all of this uh, kinds of garden herbs. Now, this is really nice. This is like a super spiritual thing. There's no command uh, in the Old Testament to give a tenth of your herbs, of your mint and your rue, the cooking things. Primarily, it was about your income, your, uh, the produce that came from your land, like uh, olive oil was one of those cash crops. The grain produced were cash crops, and they were to give a tenth of that. And then their cattle, their sheep, their livestock, they were to set aside a tenth for God. But this is going above that, and it's sort of like axing another rule. This will make us super spiritual because we do this. We have a garden, and we take a tenth. We make sure God gets it. And Jesus says, Oh, how sad it is for you. you. You give this tenth, but you neglect justice and love for God. You neglect the poor. You're not fair. You're not bringing uh, truth to people and fairness and decision-making. And you're not, um, you don't love God. That's the, most, that's the greatest commandment in all the Bible, and they knew it. It's about a heart relationship. It isn't just about doing all these rules. They have created the rules. Yes, God wants them to obey and to follow him, but he wants a clean heart. He wants a heart ready to serve him. And they have misunderstood this concept of generosity, even though they are tithing their herbs. Jesus says, you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Okay, you want to you do something extra and, 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 and tithe your uh, mint and your rue? Okay, that's nice. But do not neglect justice. Do not neglect love for God. You need to do them both. Verses 43 and 44, the focus on looking good to others. This is the image management part. Woe to you, Pharisees. Oh, how sad it is for you because you love the most important seats in the synagogues. You know, the synagogues were those uh, places of worship. They, were, they, they actually typically had buildings. They were really about a gathering of at least 10 Jewish adult males, and they were to gather for worship and scripture reading and prayer. And they did this all over the nation, Israel, and they, they do it all over the world today. And these uh, Pharisees um, loved to come in and sit, and, and then the important place in the synagogue was um, in the front row facing the congregation. So, you know, they had these chairs up here. Pharisees, when they walked in, you could tell who they were by the way they dressed. They had clergy stuff. And they walked in, and sometimes they were brought in, they came in in, in, you know, sort of a line of importance, and, and they were seated in front of everybody, and they liked that because everybody could see them, and guess what? They could see everybody else, they could watch them, and they would use that time to evaluate the congregation. 
Um, woe to you because you love the most important seats. You're full of pride. And you love those respectful greetings in the marketplace. You love to be greeted and noticed in public when people want to talk to you and they, they, they use this language and they address you with these titles. Everybody knows who you are. You're an important person. You're, you're in the elite social group in Israel. And that's really, really important. And this is verse 44. He, gets, he really says something that will set him off. He says, woe to you. Oh, how sad it is for you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. Now, one of the concepts that was important in first century Israel, and uh, some from the Old Testament background, was to walk across a grave where someone was buried um, would be a defiling thing, because a dead person is there, and you ought not go there. You should be, you're to be free of those things. However, uh, so what, what they did oftentimes is they put up grave markers so everybody knew where they were so you could walk around. And then sometimes they even whitewashed them so that they're really marked out. Oh, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. I'll get defiled. And Jesus is saying, when people listen to you, when they are influenced by you, when they're walking in the light that you're giving them, it's like walking over a grave and they're defiled because of you. Same impact. You're leading people down death row. Um, so Jesus has been talking to the Pharisees. And um, this is the religious leaders. He's going to get ask another question by a religious leader, and he's going to start talking to a different group of religious leaders. Um, in verses uh, 45 through 54, the misguidance of religious leaders. Um, so now he's going to fo he's focused on the Pharisees, verse 37 through 44. Now he's going to focus on the scribes or the experts in the law. They're a slightly different group. A lot of them are already Pharisees. That's a religious party focusing on separatism and creating rules to protect the real stuff. The scribes, or the experts in the law, also called lawyers, are more educated. They're highly trained in the scriptures. Their job is to teach people, to teach truth, not necessarily to focus on a lot of man-made rules, but their job is to teach the Old Testament scriptures. And their job is to help people apply those scriptures. And so they're lawyers. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament, and they need people to help the everyday common person make decisions, like sometimes advise, sometimes settle a court matter, an actual legal matter, that's going to be settled by the law of the Old Testament. And so these are the scribes. Verse 45, we have a reaction to Jesus. One of the experts in the law, one of these scribes answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you also insult us. So sad. Got your feelings hurt. And so this guy, you know, some of the guy, the funny thing is, is most of these guys are quiet. 
So this guy has the courage to speak up and to say, Jesus, this hurts my feelings. And uh, so Jesus now will address them. Um, And he addresses them for their failure to lead in verse 46. Jesus replied, and you, experts in the law, not the Pharisees now, Woe to you. Oh, how sad it is for you because you load the people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one little finger to help them. So it got pretty interesting by the time of Jesus. And, you know, we can't appreciate this. We we can't imagine what it was really like. But, you know, for example, one of the commandments, one of the Ten Commandments is to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Set aside a day for God, for rest. And their practice was to go to the synagogue and to worship on that day. And uh, it was very clear, and there were other passages in the Old Testament that uh, made it clear that you were not to work on that day. So what you wanted to do was to work ahead, get your job done on the day before so that you could slow down on the seventh day. And... uh, So that's what the scripture said. But they made a few extra rules. For example, they had one, no spitting on the grass on the Sabbath. This wouldn't be too hard to keep. But no spitting on the grass on the Sabbath because you might water the grass, and that would be working. And they had another one. It was um, no walking on the grass on the Sabbath because you might pick up some grass seed on your sandal and you might plant it, and that would be working. So you see, they're adding things to protect the real stuff. They think they're doing good. Uh, We know also that sick people could not be healed on the Sabbath because that would be work. It's sort of like they're missing the heart of God for the sake of their rule. Now, this gets real complicated. A man may not... This is um, actually uh, one of the rules that they've added to this. A man may not carry a burden, that is a heavy load, in his right hand or in his left hand, in his arms or on his shoulders. Okay? No heavy burdens. But he may carry it on the back of his hand or with his foot or with his mouth. Um, or with his elbow. I don't know how you're going to do this. Or in his ear, or in his hair, or in his wallet, or in his mouth downwards, or between his wallet and his shirt, and in the hem of his shirt, or his shoe, or sandal. And I guess that's just how they made it clear that you can't lift something heavy, but if it's small, you can get away with it, okay? And it just kind of shows how crazy things had become. This is like oral tradition. It was not in the Bible, but this was religious practice. And this is what they thought were making them special with God. And then in verses 47 through uh, 49... Jesus uh, rebukes them for their misunderstanding of history. He says in 47, Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. Um, The prophets in the Old Testament were the true spokesmen for God. The way it worked is 
if you read through the Old Testament, you have God establishing his nation. Moses is the key person who establishes the constitution with the nation. Moses delivers the law of the Old Testament. They have this law. They make this covenant. And now they're a nation with government. And God is the boss. And yet what... Uh, and, and God made some promises to them. He said, uh, if you obey, I'm going to bless you. But if you disobey, you can, these things are going to happen. You can count on it. If you obey, this good stuff is going to happen. If you disobey, this trouble is coming. Really, really clear. This is for the nation of Israel living in the land of Israel. It doesn't necessarily apply to the United States. So don't try to bring all that in. But God was teaching his people in this land that he had promised, the promised land. He gave it to them. You do this, this is good. You do this, trouble, okay? But so they went out of bounds quite a bit in the Old Testament. You'll see that. They got far from God. God would raise up prophets, and the prophets would come into these communities, and he would, they would speak truth. Sometimes they would talk about things that had happened in history where they got off track, and then the prophets would call them on the carpet and say, this is what you need to do. Humble yourselves before the true and living God. You need to start being obedient. And he might give them some things that they needed to focus on. They were speaking for God. However, the, end, the Jewish people themselves are primarily the ones that killed the prophets. The people who lived there, the people who were supposed to hear the prophets and change and respond to God, they were the ones who executed the prophets. And there's a whole slew of them in the Old Testament that were put to death by God's people. What's wrong with that picture? I'm glad that we're not seeing this in the United States yet, where the, God's people are shooting their pastors. At least not much. Um, Woe to you because you build tombs. You're celebrating the prophets. These prophets have been dead for hundreds of years, and now you're celebrating the, these prophets, and you're acting like they're the great heroes, but guess what? You guys aren't paying attention to what they said. You, you haven't responded to their message. You haven't, you haven't taken the heart the prophets were talking about. You're just like your ancestors. You have the same heart as your ancestors. Could have been you killing the prophets, but you're, you're masking it. You're looking like you're honoring the prophets. Verse 48, so you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. The way you're living just shows that you approve that they killed the prophets. In verse 49, because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. And this is what happened in the Old Testament. God sent spokesmen to speak for him, to call people back to him, to get their hearts right, to be prepared to walk with God. And they oftentimes killed these prophets. That happened in the Old Testament. It also happened in the New Testament because God sent prophets and he sent apostles and God's people began to put them to death also. John the Baptist had his head cut off because of a Jewish king. Uh, James, the apostle, brother of the apostle John, uh, was killed in Jerusalem. 
by the sword because of his faith in Christ. Um, Paul, uh, as you know, was persecuted severely by the Jewish people. Now, he's put to death in Rome by uh, a Roman government, Gentile government, but he was persecuted dearly by the Jewish people almost wherever he went. Jesus was crucified because he was God's spokesman. spokesman. And so this has come to pass, as Jesus said, Verses 50 through 51, the accountabilities for the leaders. Therefore, generations will be held responsible. This generation, this one living now in the presence of Jesus in the first century will be held responsible for the blood of all prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. This generation should know better. This generation has the entire Old Testament and God has been patient and he sent people to them to speak for God. And now... The promised one, the Messiah, the one that God said would come that the Old Testament scripture speaks of. He is present and he's announcing, now is the time. The sabbatical Sabbath year, time of rest, time of grace, a time of deliverance, a time of good news, a time of justice. And here he is. Ask him a question. This is what he's been doing day after day after day, announcing and showing by his miracles he's the one. Authenticate miracles, authenticate the, the message and the messenger. Verse 51, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Abel was the uh, first person that we know was murdered in the Bible in the book of Genesis. And we don't know that he was officially a prophet, but somehow he's mentioned here. He's a, he was a spokesman for God in some way. All the way to Zechariah, late in the Old Testament. That's recorded in uh, Second Chronicles, which would be late in the Jewish Old Testament. Uh, God had high expectations for his people when he sent his son. And God still has high expectations for his people because he sent his son. Verse 52, he speaks of the responsibility for spiritual guidance. He says, woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken the way the key to knowledge. They are the most highly trained Bible teachers in the first century. The scribes, the experts in the law. They know the Hebrew scriptures. They've studied these with their lives. Um, they are to know God's word. And they had the key to knowledge. They had the key to open the door of the kingdom of God for God's people. But they had set out on a course where they weren't using the key. They weren't teaching God's word in an accurate way. They weren't opening the door to knowledge they weren't opening the door to the kingdom of God. And therefore, they should have been the first to see that Jesus is the king. That Jesus is offering the kingdom of God. They should have seen it. They had the scriptures. And you have taken away the key to knowledge. They did not do their jobs. They kept the door to the kingdom of God locked from their own people. 
by their focus on the external practices. They did not show the people how to have a relationship with God. They gave the people hundreds and hundreds of rules that focuses on religious practices and not on heart issues. And then Jesus said, you yourselves have not entered. You have hindered those who were entering. The religious leaders weren't entering the kingdom of God. We know that uh, Nicodemus did, and Joseph of Arimathea did. But most of these leaders did not, and they were hindering others. You know, there were probably people's hearts that were open and tender to Jesus, and then the religious leaders came along and corrected everything. And that hindered people. Verses 53 and 54, we'll close out our passage. The opposition grows. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something that he might say. Now, Jesus just went headlong into this. You know, wouldn't it have been easy just to go around that? I'm, I don't want to confront this today because this bad things might happen. Jesus just walks into this, and he's, it's like stirring up a hornet's nest. And now the hornets are angry, and they are anxious to sting Jesus. And they will, because they will lead the cry in Jerusalem to crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And they did. Okay, let's talk about some lessons. I just have two. Two lessons. Number one, there is always a danger for us to focus on the rules without our relationship with God. Just like the Pharisees and the experts in the law, their focus shifted over time from God's word and their response to God to hundreds of extra rules. Now, we're way too sophisticated to do anything like that. But we do have a danger to focus on rules. When I was a brand new follower of Christ, uh, I read a little book. It was actually a commentary on the book of Romans disguised as a cartoon. And that's why it made so much sense to me. The name of the book was How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. And boy, that's what I wanted. How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. And so uh, through the series of cartoons and some explanations, um, it explained how the danger of religion is for people trying to uh, pick themselves up by the bootstrap, so to speak, and make themselves good enough for God. And it's like, okay, God, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at the other people. Am I good enough? Will you accept me? I'm trying really hard. That's religion trying to reach God. That, it, that, it, that includes churches, and it includes all the world religions. But Christianity is different. Christianity is recognizing, well, you know, I'm a sinner, and um, I am not good enough to reach God. And I will never be good enough. I have limitations, and it's not good. The outcome is not good. However, Christianity is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And God sent his son down to us, 
And here I am, and God reaches down to me, and he offers his son. And that message that Jesus died on the cross, and he paid the penalty for our sins, and he paid for all of them, and there's nothing I can do to add to that. And Jesus just wants me to trust him and to believe that Christ died for me, and it's all paid for. Oh, I get that. I like that. I'm forgiven, and I like that too. It was great to feel clean on the inside and to have all that moral junk and garbage out and that God wanted now to have a relationship with me and he just wants me to walk along with him and yes, he has instructions for me to follow and we can call them rules if we want or commands but God is going to enable me. He's given the Holy Spirit to help me, to give me strength. Uh, he's given me his word to guide me and to give me wisdom and give me instruction and to show me the way. And I can just go ahead and do life. And if I fall down, and I will, he's made a provision that I can ask for forgiveness and get back up. And so uh, I learned that as a new Christian, and that those cartoons made a whole lot of sense to me. Now, but there is another problem that we run into now, a lot of us get, okay, I like the idea that uh, Jesus saves me and it's by grace and I, don't, I can't deserve it. But what we do is we start to get sloppy sometimes and we sort of try to do Christianity on our own and we have these things that good Christians do and so we try to do them and we want to look good to other people so we look good and, you know, good Christian. Isn't that great? And we sometimes forget about, well, God, thank you for all that you've provided for me. Thank you for this food you've given me today. Thank you that every paycheck comes from you. We forget about things like that, that it's really all from him. We think we begin to accomplish things, and we're good because we're good. And we forget. And we forget to ask God for help. And we get into stress and trouble, and we sometimes forget, and we just try harder. And pretty soon, we're trying to live this Christian life on our own, totally without God. And we're becoming hypocrites. We're becoming like Pharisees, living this life in our own strength. And we tire out, and we get discouraged. And sometimes we want to give up. Now, life is hard enough without walking closely with Jesus. But that's a danger. If we don't focus, if we... The danger for us to focus on rules without our relationship with God. And you can do it as a Christian, you can do it as a non-Christian. Um, so, uh, second lesson, last lesson, and we'll close here. Uh, for us to walk in the light, we must be constantly exposed to the light. I have a whole string of passages here. I'll just do a couple. Uh, for us to walk in the light. You know, Jesus said how the eye is the lamp and we need light to see and light to expel darkness and light to live in an accurate way. We also need spiritual light. John 8, 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If that's the only verse you ever know, follow Jesus. He's the light of the world. He's overcome all darkness. Follow him.
just one day at a time. And it's about a relationship. He will lead me into the light. He will never lead me into darkness. Another passage is 1 John 1, 5 through 7. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. This is a message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, next slide, we lie, we do not live out the truth, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us. So um, when I am close to God, when I am close to the light, I'm in relationship with him, and he dispels the darkness. He's the one who keeps my ways pure. Because he shows light, he shows up that, hey, my way is I'm getting off the path, or it's getting a little bit uh, discolored here. This uh, darkness entering into my path is probably not good. I need to deal with it. Psalm 19.8. Psalm 19.8. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. God's word, the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light. You need light for your eyes, comes from God's word. You need spiritual light, it comes from God's word. We need to be exposed to this book. We need to be people of this book. Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You deal with fear? Stay close to the light. He's the one who's going to help dispel the darkness and deal with your fear. Psalm 89, 15. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, to acknowledge you, to profess you, to worship you, who walk in the light of your presence. You want to be in a state of blessing? Walk in the light. Put yourself in the place of a blessing, of God's favor on your life. Psalm 119, verses 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. God's word will guide you every day. Show you the course. Show you what's off base. Encourage you to keep going give you hope for the future. And I'm going to make it all the way, so I'm going to do the last one, Psalm 119.30. The unfolding of your words give light, it gives understanding to the simple. You feel simple sometimes when it comes to God's word? This is the place to be. Just stay in there, and uh, it's going to make you wise. You can trust God's word. Let's stand and, and pray. So this is about having a relationship with God. Uh, it's about getting into his word. It's about spending time with him. It's about talking with him. Um, it's about exposing your life to his life. Let's pray. Lord, we just humble ourselves and pause before you. And we can look back and sort of uh, laugh about uh, some of the practices of the religious leaders in, in the Gospels. And yet... We can be tempted to focus on rules and to focus on how we look and to focus on the externals and to forget 
your, your work and what you've done and what you're going to do. Thank you that you are the light of the world. May we draw close to you. May, we de- uh, may you give us a desire to walk in the light, to trust you just day by day, to get up each day and to start the day with you, to ask for your help and to thank you each day as we make it. And as we will look back one day, we'll see the course and we'll see the things that honored you and we'll see things that you protected us from. And we will see how things were really uh, tough and yet how you worked them out for good. Help us to grow as followers of Christ in our desire to be with you, to grow in our desire to know the word and to be able to continue to learn from it.